<laughs> we're surrounded, right? And we're like, okay, they just shoot outwards. Like, we're good here. Uh, but it was like, do we stay in that situation that uh, wasn't tenable? Or do we get back to a safer location a few kilometers away, next village over where we had a compound, had more, um, more forces and just more visibility, quite frankly. And I had to make a decision and we were trying to get helicopter support because obviously it's a lot easier if you have helicopters hovering overhead that, you know, people probably are not going to mess with you. And was not getting word on that. It was like, we got to go because it's getting dark. And if we spend another night here, this could go really bad because it's not a really uh, a good position to be in. Hi, everyone. You're listening to the Run Your Life podcast with host Andy Vasley. Today on the show, I sit down with the brilliantly courageous Herb Thompson, who was a retired Special Forces Green Beret for the United States Army. He's here to talk about life lessons learned, not only from growing up in extremely challenging conditions rooted in deep poverty and dysfunction, but also his trajectory into serving his country as a member of the U.S. Army. Herb completed two tour of duties in Afghanistan, with the first one being in 2003 and 2004, and the second one being in 2012. To this day, Herb is the only person in U.S. Army history to earn both the Green Beret and Drill Sergeant of the Year awards. So imagine that for a moment. The only person in the U.S. Army history to earn both the Green Beret and Drill Sergeant of the Year awards. What a testament to the enormous talent, dedication, and commitment Herb must have demonstrated with consistency to be able to win those awards. Added to this, Herb is also a best-selling author who wrote the award-winning book, The Transition Mission, which is based on his vast military experiences that include a harrowing two weeks where he and the team he was leading were ambushed three times in Afghanistan by the Taliban back in 2012. In our conversation, Herb talks about this experience and how he learned to navigate and lead in such high-pressure extremely hostile and volatile environments that were life or death in nature, but to do so with deep clarity of mind and calmness in order to make the best decisions possible to protect those around him who he served in his leadership role. In this episode, you'll hear real stories that shaped Herb's journey and the wisdom gained from these experiences. These life lessons transcend the military itself and can be applied to any of us wanting to show up as our best selves with consistency in order to reveal and demonstrate our true potential both personally and professionally in life. Herb knew in his heart that the time had come for him to retire from his very distinguished military career to pursue a new path in life. And with this path came the hard challenges of transitioning from an elite Green Beret who fought for his country to living life as a normal civilian 
wanting to make a difference in new ways. His desire to learn, grow, and evolve after his military service has been evidenced by his pursuit of higher academics. After his military service, Herb went on to enroll at the Ivy League's Cornell University and ultimately graduate with his Master's of Business Administration, which is no easy feat in itself. Herb now mentors transitioning service members who are leaving the military, moving on to new careers, and is a motivational speaker who roots himself in the strong belief that we must own our own journeys. Rather than being owned and controlled by the circumstances, obstacles, and barriers that life throws at us at times. In this episode, we also talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, known also as PTSD, and how he has learned to cope with the trauma he experienced, not only as a young person growing up in extreme dysfunction, but also the deep trauma he experienced in hard combat that was life and death in nature. Before closing off this introduction, I want to thank my friend Kevin Nall, who is the executive producer of this podcast. His work behind the scenes deserves a big shout out. So thank you, Kevin, for all that you do in helping to make each episode the best that it can be. And to all my listeners, I thank you for your support for this podcast over the years. I pay out of pocket for all expenses associated with producing and publishing this podcast. But all I ask is that if you find value and meaning in these episodes, please share them on social media or directly with friends or family that you feel will benefit from listening. One of my upcoming goals for 2024 is to continue to increase my listenership for this podcast. So I'm leaning on all of you to help me in whatever way you can. So thanks in advance for any support you can provide. It is very much appreciated. And with that, let's now jump right into my conversation with the inspiring Herb Thompson. I'm sitting here looking at you, man. You're in your studio back in Washington, D.C. I'm in my studio in Saudi Arabia, of all places, right? And I am eternally grateful for you taking the time to come on the podcast to share your journey. So thank you so much in advance to our conversation. No, I'm excited, Andy. This this could be a good conversation. I actually have been to Saudi Arabia, spent a few months in Riyadh, so uh, okay. very, very f- familiar with uh, your living situation right now, or yeah. somewhat. Yeah. And, you know, to set the context for the listeners, can you let them know, they would have heard a bit about you in the intro to the podcast, but just let the listeners know who you are, where you're from, and the work that you do. Definitely. I'll give the short dime tour. I grew up in upstate New York, very poor American standard of poor lived in trailer park on, on government assistance. Well, my dad lost factory job. Parents weren't educated. Mom did not graduate high school. The army, the U S army was the only choice for me. It's what I wanted to do since I was a little kid. Uh, so I was able to do that. As soon as I graduated high school, I joined the army. I I'm colorblind though. So I wanted to do certain things and they said, you can only do these things. 
so it took me about a 10-year journey to get to what I wanted to be doing in the Army. But uh, throughout a 20-plus year career in the U.S. Army, I was able to you know, earn, earn the Green Beret or, you know, Special Forces. I was also the Army's Drill Center of the Year 15 years ago before all this hair and beard and stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, my claim to fame is, you know, I'm the only person that's ever done that. And the U.S. Army is to be the Army's drill sergeant of the year and earn the Green Beret. All that being said, like, I don't have a reserve parking spot at the grocery store. No one really cares, but it's like my kind of thing, right? I can make a T-shirt right. of it or something. But then it was, hey, what do I do when I get out? Because I joined at 17, so I was going to be 38 years old or so when I got uh, retired out of the Army. And it was like, I got to find this, you know, what's next? What's going to be my next passion and kind of what drives me? And for me, it led me to Cornell to get my MBA. Uh, to get some education for the my skills, and I went into the consulting world, but also just love helping people. So I ended up uh, now at a tech company, uh, Fortune 500 tech company, and I also do a lot of work on my own, doing public speaking. I wrote a book that helps service members in the U.S. transition, but really it's a career transition guide for a lot of people, just focused on uh, U.S. military, mm-hmm. and then a bunch of other things going on, but happy to be here, Andy. Yeah, yeah, you know, and you're your journey is amazing. And before actually starting this podcast, we talked about that sense of vulnerability and and sharing our own stories gives permission to other people to do the same. And, you know, you grew up in some tough conditions and then you go on to the work that you did to serve your country as a Green Beret. It's been extraordinary, your journey. But when you think of what you've accomplished, and then you connect it back to young Herb being 10 or 12 or nine years old. Um, what strengths did you develop despite your hard circumstances, right? What strengths did you develop at that time that went on to serve the future Herb in the way that you would go on to serve the world through your work? That, that's a good question, Andy. I've, I've never, you know, I think I, I've done one or two posts on this. I've never publicly spoke about it. Uh, one thing probably comes to mind is I was sexually assaulted as a, as a young child, right? Under under the age of 10. And I'll just say the resiliency, right? Of Does that own me or do I own my journey? And, and I've never really thought about it over the years, right? It's probably mm-hmm. been there in the back of my mind, but just that grit and resiliency to overcome and, and seeing that. And, and the second thing I would say is we often hear it takes a village to raise a child. And, and for me, I, I joke, I spent a lot of time with Jack, who was a Played minor league baseball here in the States, Marine Corps veteran of the Korean War. Just, we spent a lot of time together. He was shaping me. Now, I say this because he was the in-school suspension monitor, so I was always in trouble. Yeah. And uh, he, he'd be like, what are you doing in here? Like, what are you doing? Like, the, you you have a bright future. Like, um, But there was other people in the community that really, uh, besides just my parents, that really took an interest and said, hey, man, you, there's something with you. Like you, mm-hmm. you're going to do something special one day. And I was, of course, young, you know, kid, teenager. I, yeah, whatever. But eventually I started realizing, and oh yeah, I, I don't have to live this life, right. Of mm-hmm. being in trouble and I can basically become what I want in life. Right. If I, I work towards it and work smartly and then work, you know, very hard that good things can happen if I, you know, have a good positive attitude and that's that's probably just where it came from right maybe i don't know how much of that is just natural born into Mm -hmm. me i was born with more of a positive attitude but and how much of it was hey i can really you know be disgruntled at my situation in life or i can go hey let me let me change where my life is and 
let me take control of this and move on. And fortunately, I was able to do that. Were your parents optimistic and positive? Did they, despite, you know, there's a the concept of intergenerational trauma. And what intergenerational trauma would suggest is that as much as we can be angry at our parents for the way they might have raised us or the conditions we were raised in, they also went through shit, right? So there is intergenerational trauma, but when you look at your parents, what was their skill set? Because they passed something on to you, genetically or environmentally, they passed something on to you. So were they generally a positive mindset or what what was there that might have been passed on to you? Especially my dad, yes. Even when he lost his factory job and is like, now to to frame this also, he had barely graduated high school, had no skills, worked in the factory since he had, you know, graduated high school, uh, and was a very large man. By that I mean at one point he was over five hundred and fifty pounds. Uh so if you're gonna just the reality is that's not someone who you look at and go, I want to employ that person. That's just the reality of the situation. So but always positive, right? Mm-hmm. Uh I, I will say the love that he showed right of no matter the situation and he still thinks i walk on water right he thinks you know it, it's ridiculous i'm like dad i'm normal but he that's just his love and his ability to show that and always stay positive always find a way to laugh no matter the circumstances of like yep we don't know what we're eating tonight oh we're gonna make a box of cornbread because it costs mm-hmm. 39 cents and we're that's gonna be dinner tonight we'd laugh about it have fun with it be like well we can you know hey we'll put some butter on it <laughs> It'll taste a little better. So just that positivity, no matter yeah. the situation. And and, and I, I think the ability to laugh, so mm-hmm. many people don't laugh, right? And yeah. it's, it's contagious, but it's also uh, positive. And I mean, quite frankly, for everyone, we have bad moments in life. How do you get through without some laughter? So his ability yeah. just to uh, keep persevering, right? And then show his love for his family and find a way to laugh were, were huge for me. And I, I'll, to be truthful, I didn't understand that when I was yeah. 15, 16, 17 years old. Quite frankly, I was embarrassed. High school kid, my parents are on welfare, I'm poor. I didn't understand that until you know I matured and became older. And I was like, oh, now all this you know, makes sense to me. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. And you know, they, there's so much research around uh, genetics, and they say that we're basically 50% genetics, 50% environment, right? And you're given the the hand you're dealt with, right? So it sounds to me like growing up with that, I want to say role model in the sense of demonstrating positivity has a huge influence on us, right? And that's what you shared right there in that story. So that's where the positivity was passed on. And the evidence around optimal performance and being at our best suggests that optimism is one of the key variables in performing at our best, where we know that there is going to be some optimistic future based on what we're capable of, right? So there's a lot of things happening on below the surface that probably provided you with the skills to excel despite the hardship. I would add one thing to that, Andy, is my ability to fail. And what I mean that was my parents and especially my dad was very hands-off as far as not telling me how to, and quite frankly, maybe I was uncontrollable at times, but 
I was able to go out there and fail and experiment and do things, even as a kid, that set me up for life because I was just able to experience. And it's something I've, you know, quite frankly, as a parent now, I've struggled with because I want to help my kid, right? But I'm like, hey, you got to fail. You got to, I can't tell you how to do this. You have to, you have to learn for yourself. I can give you some advice and insights, but really, I, I believe one of the critical factors in my upbringing was I was left to my own devices a lot. And I was able mm-hmm. to, thankfully make it through everything but really learn from that just life in general leadership human connection relationship building all that it it really was a monumental part of my growth was uh, i was uh, i was given the ability to fail and Mm. and learn from that and and do that and i think that's helped me out a lot so with failure a lot of people will experience failure and they will have a sense of self-judgment and a self-critical inner voice and a lot of work around positive psychology and creating empowering personal narratives comes down to constructing narratives that serve us rather than disempower us and that is a skill set that we build so when you think back to teenage herb and your experiences with failure what did failure feel like for you at the time and how were you able to accept it in a non-judgmental way that allowed you to learn from it? Because that's ultimately what you did. You you learn from it and you move forward. So just share any insight you have there. Uh, I think a lot of it is it, it fueled me, right? A, a, a set, and still to this day, a setback will fuel me because I'm I like to prove things to myself of sometimes a challenge. That was a big part of going to Cornell to get my MBA was a, it was a challenge. Right, and I wanted to prove something, and was able to do that. So I, I, I think that comes into it in that positive mindset. Now, as a kid, I didn't necessarily understand it, but I was always okay. That's bad, and I'd seen my dad get knocked down. Right, I'd seen family members. Quite frankly, uh, all my family is poor. No one had gone to university or anything. So uh, that was just kind of the status quo. Everyone around me, for the most part, uh, too, um, as we were in the trailer park and then got kicked out of the trailer park. So it was. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't know. What, there wasn't one moment where I was like, "Oh, that positivity," but more the other way of like just all the negative and just all the negative surrounding people of like, "Oh, what was me, my situation?" And I realized I, I can change that. A lot of it's just my attitude, and there was no kind of magical moment. But I've used it throughout. When I was in special forces selection, you put on a heavy pack on your back, about 75 pounds or so, and you, you walk through the woods and, you know, it's only you and you're at night and it's 2 a.m. and you're like, do I want this or not? I, I never had those questions. And a lot of people will be like going, don't quit, don't quit, don't quit. Well, to me, quits are in your mind then, right? So mine was just keep stepping, keep stepping, one more step, one more step, one more step, make them make the decision to not select me, but I'm going to. And I use as an example of just a, a positive mental attitude uh, really carrying the day. It's, it's been huge for my, you know, whatever it is, success uh, to this point in life. Yeah, that's beautiful. And what you said right there, I caught just a glimpse of it. You said, prove to myself, right? Prove to myself, not to other people. And that's the key to optimal performance is that our metric, when we provide success criteria for ourselves and our own performance, is that we're not proving anything to anybody else. We are constantly proving to ourselves that we are capable and we are scanning 
our past for evidence to know that we've gotten over hard shit. We've done that. Now we have the evidence to show that we can keep, as you say, with the metaphor, putting one foot in front of the other with a 75 pound pack on your back. It's one foot in front of the other instead of the mantra, don't quit, don't quit, don't quit, which is really rooted in negativity, yep. right? So what you have working for you if we deconstruct it, is this belief in self and to focus on self and to prove to yourself in order to find self-worth and your place in the world. Uh, and I think that's uh, probably easier back you know, when I was a kid. I was born in 1980, so growing up in the 80s, 90s, it was easier because we didn't have social media. There's a lot of fakeness out there, right? Or like, oh, I'm comparing myself to them, or I want to do this to impress others, that battle within in a positive manner of using that motivation to me is where the people that are successful, that's, that's, that is a key attribute of my mind is that inner drive, that battle within to, you know, prove something to themselves and excel. Yeah. And this ties into the research around perfectionism and the podcast I recorded, which I mentioned before with the perfectionist expert, Thomas Kern, his research has shown over the past 30 years that perfectionism is rooted in either self-imposed or self-prescribed perfectionism, where we put pressure on ourselves to be our best and we can't accept nothing but perfect, or society-prescribed perfection, or other-prescribed perfection, which is we demand perfection in others. But the biggest um, increase in perfectionism comes from society imposed perfectionism, which comes from social media and the presence of the perfect self. Even though we know th things are happening and everything is shitty and chaotic around us, we're still going to put on that perfect picture on social media to present our perfect self. But that in itself masks vulnerability and imperfection. It's the presentation of perfect self that gets in the way and presents so many problems, you know? So based on that presentation of self, you have broken through so many barriers to present your authentic self in all its forms. And imagine the people you are helping and the people you are giving permission to to do the same. So when you think of that, and think of yourself as a mentor and a model for others, what comes up for you? That authentic authenticity, the vulnerability, and, and I, I often, you know, will say sometimes, well, one of the people I admire most is my eldest son. He's 18 years old, off to university, uh, but he's on the autism spectrum, right? Which, you know, back a few years ago, they would have called Asperger's. And he walks to the beat of his own drum, and he is comfortable with it. And I love it. Now, quite frankly, he wants to talk to me about Harry Potter and, you know, marine animals and a bunch of stuff that I don't understand in Star Wars. But I love it because he stays true to who he is. And I, I tell him, don't ever change, right? Now, in a different way, that's how I am. What you see is what you get. Uh, and I'm okay. And to me, it's almost caring enough to not care what other people think so that I can just be my true self. And I'm, I'm, but most importantly, I'm happy with it. If we weren't on this call and I was just in here, I'm happy with who I am. And that's what I, I talk about with my eldest son is like, he is truly just happy with who he is and he's different and he doesn't care. 
And, and to me, that's a unique thing, especially in, you know, 2023, 2024 of when, with all these societal pressures, when you can just be your own self. And I love it. No matter who someone is, what walk of life, when they are just true to themselves and who they are, and they don't care about the societal pressures, it, it brings a smile to my face. Uh, absolutely, man. And and that connects to a lot of the research around aligning to core values. So it sounds like you've been a person that you know the core values that have driven you to do your best and to experience the world in ways that you can impact the world through your work, but also be your best and show up for others to be your best, which you have no doubtedly been able to do through your work in the military. So it's this alignment to core values, but it's also um, one of my mentors is Dr. Michael Gervais. He's a well-known performance psychologist he worked very closely with the Seattle Seahawks. He was the performance psychologist for the Seattle Seahawks uh, with Pete Carroll. And yeah. um, he just released his latest book, his first book, actually. He wrote a book with Pete, but it's his first solo book where he, he calls it FOPO, Fear of Other People's Opinions, and how we can, the number one principle to mastery in life is the fear of overcoming other people's opinions. So we're genetically and evolutionarily wired to look for the saber tooth that's gonna kill us, right? Yeah. So we're, we're programmed to look for danger, right? But we don't have to worry about that anymore. So now what has transplanted the saber tooth tiger is fear of other people's opinions and worried about what other people think and how debilitating that is. So it sounds like through your entire journey, you've been able to kind of put that on the back burner, maybe understand that it exists, but how have you been able to navigate that difficult landscape in order to stay aligned to your core values, but also you know, not let the fear of other people's opinions get in the way of who you are and how you want to show up for the world. Yeah, I don't know if it's really been a conscious thought uh, to do that. It's just, I am who I am, right? But to be fair to the people listening, uh, there's not moments that I don't have doubts, right? Uh, I, I'm human, right? And I, one of the ones I I think too is my first day at Cornell, my first day in class at Cornell. I'm, ooh, I'm in this Ivy League institution. Oh my God. And for those, you know, I know we won't be on video, but I have tattoos, right? My arms are covered in tattoos. I have a long hair and a long beard. It wasn't as long back then, but it was. You got a little uh, Tom Hanks, Forrest Gump beard going on there, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. So it was a little shorter then, but I, I was worried about what I'd look like because I wanted to fit in. Right. And so I had my sleeves down, covering my tattoos, and the professor came out for our first class, actual class. And I'll never forget it. I looked there, she approached from the right, auditorium style, Ivy League, you know, classroom. And I'm like, holy shit, she's got tattoos. Like she's got <laughs> going down her arm and down her legs. And I was like, pulling up my sleeves. And I'm like, no, I'm gonna be who I am. And, it, and that was probably like in the last five or six years, like a, a crucial pivotal moment. Cause I had done it in the military and that's the difference. I've been who I was, but like now I'm out in society and it, it's, it's a little different, but I'm like, no, I'm going to be who I am. And I, I don't care 
what others think. I don't care if they don't like my tattoos. That's fine. I don't care if they don't like my beard, my hair, the way I, the t-shirt I wore, I'm going to be who I am. And, and that was a pivotal moment for me. And it was because of someone else. It wasn't something I necessarily did. It was her modeling that. And she, she might not even have known it, right? She just came out dressed in her normal attire to present to the class. But here I was looking at like, here's an esteemed professor at Ivy League University. And she's got tattoos and it. it must be okay. So I, I do think some of that is we can, you know, look at people and go, oh, they don't have doubts. So no, I've had doubts, you know, I've been scared or I've been concerned and not that we don't rely on others for those little moments. Now, what do I do with that? What do I do with that moment after I saw that professor come out? How do I react now? Now it's on me. So that's one uh, that kind of sticks out for me, Andy. Yeah, that's that's great. And imagine what was going on for her and her journey and for her to be able to step up and say, I'm going to be me despite the institution around yeah. me. Obviously, the institution gave her a chance, right? Because she sounded like if she was on that platform, she was really good at what she did and she was going to show up as her authentic self. And then that allowed you to pull your sleeves up, as you say, and and be proud and to connect and to know. So it goes back to sharing ourself is giving permission to other people to show up in ways that honor them, right? Definitely, that's the case. And also, I feel like it's it's permission for someone not to like you. It's okay. Not yeah. everyone has to like you or respect you. I mean, we would hope for that, but this is you know not a perfect world. And humans are complex. And the way our brains work are very complex, so uh, I can't try to make everyone happy. Yeah. But one person I should definitely try to make happy is myself. Yeah. Because that's the person I have to deal with every day yeah. is myself. So that maybe that's kind of my mantra is like make myself happy, and then through that I can make others happy. Yeah, beautiful work on self, and through working on self, you are in a position to be at your best for others, right? And I want to jump into your military career because uh, when I read your story, you sent me the the article, which is this true story of a harrowing special forces combat mission teaches 11 brilliant lessons in leadership. I read through that and I'm like imagining it and I can visualize it and I can see, you know, I'm, I'm visualizing it based on the text and there's not that many pictures. It's from Inc. Magazine. And then I'm drawn back to being a quarterback. And I feel life or death is Canadian football. There's only three downs, right? Yeah. American football, there's four. So I'll use the Canadian metaphor for football, right? So you imagine the ele elements in Canada in October. It's windy. It's cold. I was a quarterback and a punter. I never wanted to punt from my own end zone against the wind because I just thought, like, I got to show up here. And I got to launch a bomb that yeah. turns over and pushes the return team so far back that, you know, the punt cover team can trap them at at least half. But that's pressure to me, right? That's pressure to me is standing on my own goal line or three yards deep into my end zone, receiving the snap from the long snapper to punt the ball against the wind when it's cold. That's pressure to me. And that feels like life or death or a quarterback second down and 17 would be third down and 17 in, in the American NFL league. But 
same thing. That's pressure. You're feeling yeah. pressure. You're you're kind of looking at the defense. You're feeling pressure. The mind is starting to race a little bit. You know, lots of stuff happening, but it's not life or death. But it feels like life or death, right? It does, so, yeah. So that that is what I thought about. Like, what were my experiences with high pressure, high stakes environments where I'm in the public eye? And I have to perform at my best. And if I don't perform at my best, I'm letting my team down is very different than your story where you're surrounded by the Taliban. And that's really life or death, right? So I just want to start to pick apart the skills necessary for you to show up in that situation and be at your best. Before we get into the story, your role in the military, like, so many difficult high stakes situations what skills did you need to develop to show up at your best in an environment of extreme uncertainty and volatility that that that's the key point there at the end the extreme uncertainty and volatility and that is part of it is training and part of it is for whatever reason when i got to selection i had what it took so they, they purposely select people for that, that can deal with ambiguity, that don't necessarily can go on and who can go through hardship and, and keep going. They, they select for that and they've refined it over the years and over the last 60 some years, they've refined it down to what that looks like. So then you get those type of people who get selected, who meet the marks, then you train them with skill sets. For me in, in, in the situation there, you have to have that confidence. Right, you have to have the confidence that it's going to be okay. We're we're going to make it out of here, and that comes through, you know, being a master of your craft, no matter what it is. Kind of going back to what you said, pressure from different walks of life. Know you know your stuff. I don't care if you're an accountant or you're in a war zone fighting through an ambush. You, you can rely on the fact that you know your stuff. You are an expert at your craft, uh, and you have to trust in yourself in that. And plus realize there's a few things that are outside of your control that can happen and you just have to adjust. But to me, it really comes down with that selection and whether that is, you know, there's a, a lot of debate or there could be a debate of like what it is, but even Angela Duckworth, you know, at University of Pennsylvania with the grip is, is went and studied special forces selection. Cause they're like, there's something special here for no pun intended of mm-hmm. what they test for because that really kind of gets you the person, right? So you have to start with something. You can't build it uh, from scratch. Uh, there has to be some of those intangibles there already, uh, and then you can mold it and shape it a little bit. So you brought this skill set into the training. So you were selected through a process of training where they saw something in you to say, this guy's taking one step in front of the other, he's doing the work and talk a little more deeply about those skills in trying times that were artificially created in order to vet out the people that couldn't stand up to the test. The best for us in U.S. Army Special Forces is you you do the star course. And I kind of talked about a little bit of walking through the woods, right? And you have that pack on and you go and you don't know when you stop, right? And everything all the assessments they're doing. Most of them are physical. There's a lot of mental and people, it's all mental. People are like, well, you walked 15 miles. How was that mental? It's like, well, it becomes a mental game because you don't know how you're doing. 
they just tell you to go. And then they tell you to stop at some point, right? There's someone there with a clipboard or something tells you to stop. And that really gets them to seeing who's going to keep going. Who's not looking for that affirmation that they're doing okay. And that's the only way they'll keep going or who needs, who needs a buddy to help them out though. There is a piece of that where they really focus on teamwork in our selection. It, it really weeds people out of that, that mental toughness of circumstances, you know, very ambiguous. I will keep going. And that, that's how they've modeled it. And then they go, okay, can you work together as a team? And that's what makes us army special forces different is because we're meant to go work by with and through indigenous populations. So then we have to learn a culture and we go through and we, we, we work with local militias, local military in the villages with people. So then they see, can you be a good teammate? So not only can you excel and, you know, go physically and mentally beyond what others can, can you do that as part of a team? And can you be a good, a good mate, if you will, a, a buddy mm-hmm. on the team to like help others? Cause at the end of the day, the whole thing's about helping others. It's not about you. And, and that's why they've really dialed that selection into a uh, uh, fine art with mm-hmm. a lot of science behind it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you think about that, the ability to reflect in the moment as a team member, how do you reflect? Are there protocols? You have protocols, obviously, to reflect, but think about all the team meetings out there of wasted time, wasted time and energy and very ambiguous agendas, you know, people having their own personal agendas within the agenda, and then letting the loudest voice at the table dominate, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. Because it sounds like you can be an introvert and still excel as a Green Beret, or you can be an extrovert. But how do you honor the voices in the reflection process to bring out the very best reflections to improve? That that, that is key for our success. You know, going through. We call it after action review. You could call it a hot wash, a reflection, a retrospective. There's all kinds of words and terms for it. But hey, do we sit around the table and talk about what went well, what went wrong, what can we improve on? And it may sound for those that know the special forces, it's a very alpha, like type A personality environment, just in general. But you have to have some thick skin in there, but also knowing that. There's psychological safety of, of, hey, what about this? And even if it's the new guy and you're like, hey, we did this and it didn't work. We should try something else. Do you allow that to happen? And that's really what I carry over to my you know post-military career is, is, is we have to have those tough conversations and you better pre- prepare to articulate, like not just point out a problem, but point out like, hey, how can we do it better? Or I don't know, but like, obviously I saw this happen with with this evolution, whether it's selling a widget, a conference, a, a sale, whatnot, what, what, how can we improve it? How, how can we do better? And everyone in the team should have a voice in that because not everyone sees everything. And depending on what level you're at, you see certain aspects of an event. So that is critical to you know the special forces success is always doing that. And quite frankly, even before that bottom-up planning. Mm-hmm. So even when you're getting ready to do something, it's bottom up plan, not from the top down. Mm-hmm. So the people who are going to have to live it and actually execute and do whatever it is, they're the ones planning it. So they're, they have skin in the game, their own, you know, their mm-hmm. lives, for lack of better words, in a lot of situations. And they're involved with planning it. They are the planners. 
Uh, and then just, it goes full circle from there, from, you know, planning it to executing it. Then like, let's review it and improve the next time and let's go do it again. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's the voices of those who you serve and putting skin in the game in, in regards to being in the trenches uh, rather than being a leader from an ivory tower. Yeah. You know? And that's what the article brought up for me is like, holy shit, I love the pickup story. Right. So can, can you just give the listeners some context? I'll include a, a link to the article itself, but provide some context to what you were experiencing in the moment as leader of 205 soldiers, right? Yeah, over, uh, over 200, yeah. Yeah, and, and some Afghani, some American. What was the percentage distribution there? It, it, to make it even more of a leadership challenge, there was, of that 205, maybe 10 Americans. Okay. And the rest, the rest were Afghans. And then ones I worked closely with every day, and then ones I didn't work closely with, and ones I just met. Right, so there's a a very a wide spectrum of people involved on the team, and, and varying degrees of trust as a result of inexperience working with them. A huge uh, degree of trust. Um, what isn't said in this story? So we're we're in a faraway village, very removed from other U.S. forces uh, in the main bases, uh, a very remote part of Afghanistan. One road in. One main road, there's a little side goat trail you can get, you know, some four wheelers, ATVs in on or horses, but uh, one main road in. And we were there and we had been doing doing a mission. Uh, what is not said in the article, I don't think, is spoiler alert, we get ambushed. And that is the uh, third ambush or second ambush. There would be a third one within the next couple of days. So this would be our second ambush. This will be our second ambush that we we all survive through or in, in a couple of days, and then there will be another one a couple of days later. But beautiful summer day. I mean, bright blue. Just the most Afghanistan is a magical place. If it could, you know, stop uh, people from fighting each other in war, it is just a magical of nature. Uh, the mountains and just beautiful blue sky unobstructed even at night but this was during the day puffy white clouds and it was i could see the enemy on a hill and it was you know they're they're a couple of kilometers away and we could hear them on the radio talking hey we're gonna we're gonna ambush these guys we're gonna attack and they had been you know during the day so you know they essentially had shot at us from like three or four different directions so at this point we got them where we want <laughs> we're surrounded right and we're like okay they're just shoot outwards like we're good here uh, but it was like do we stay in that situation that wasn't tenable or do we get back to a safer location a few kilometers away next village over where we had a compound had more um more forces and just more visibility quite frankly uh, and i had to make a decision and we were trying to get helicopter support because obviously it's a lot easier if you have helicopters hovering overhead that you know people probably are not going to mess with you and was not getting word on that. It was like, we got to go because it's getting dark. And if we spend another night here, this could go really bad because it's not a really uh, a good position to be in. Went and told all the people we just talked about and, you know, different varying levels of trust, different varying levels of, okay, we're with who hurt, but at the end of the day, we're all, we're all going and had influence them to go. And, and we went and we're heading out. And uh, I, I never forget, there's this farmer walking and it was just like, 
I was just mesmerized watching him. Like he's just walking like no care in the world. And I kept watching him. And then the hair on the back of my neck stood up. I turned around and there goes a rocket propel grenade overhead. And now by now the farmer's way past and the ambush is on. This is where I, I knew it was going to happen. Cause quite frankly, if the roles were reversed, I would ambush them there. And, um, our vehicle stopped <laughs> in the, what in the military we'd call the X, which you don't want to be on the X. Cause that's like where everyone's shooting at. And that is right where my vehicle stopped. And I was in a, uh, I was in a just regular pickup truck. You would see driving around the streets, wherever you are in the, you know, the world right now, you would, I chose to be in that because I had visibility. I could mm. see more. Um, With but, a couple stacked helmets up. I did, I did stack a couple of helmets up because I, hey, maybe if I get shot from this way, the helmet will stop it. But for me, it was a thing I had to as a leader. I had to be able to see if I got into the up-armored Humvee that has very thick armor and smaller windows. I just wouldn't be able to see. Uh, now, this is either the wisest or one of the dumbest choices I ever made was like, I'm going to go in the unarmored, you know, just the regular vehicle and, and go. Uh, but I did that. And then now we're stopped and I'm getting shot at. We're all getting shot at. And I'm like... I got to do something. So I've been carrying this rocket around and I dismounted, ran around the building and uh, fired at the enemy. And then now that got their attention and they, you know, they're shooting at me now. Now it isn't everyone. They're just shooting at me because they're like, oh, this guy wants to have fun. Let's, let's let him have fun. So um, I run back around the building, dust, <laughs> coffin, all that. And there's the vehicles that kept moving. So they didn't wait for me and they got their, you know, the situation resolved at the front of the convoy and they kept going. So now I'm standing there, you know, in the middle of this ambush getting shot at and, you know, multiple machine guns, RPG, rock propelled grenades, uh, different, different rifles being shot at me. And I'm just standing there and I was like, oh, it's time to go. And I sprinted uh, to, to catch up. Right. And when I sprinted to catch up, uh, ran faster than probably ever thought i four, could you know 4.5 level 40? speed yeah yeah oh yeah like yeah is and i had all kinds of kit on too i mean yeah. i had my body armor my helmet i mean this i yeah. shouldn't have been running fast but i i mean it was probably like one of those cartoons with just like dust flying up from my feet and i get to the truck and there's oscar and he's ah and he's just shooting back at the enemy and he, he's happy i'm back he's ah, you know and and i dive into the truck and uh, we keep going uh, we actually end up stopping again. We're out of the we're out of the um, kind of kill zone there, if you will, the X, and we we stop again. And I have to get out again, go up to the front vehicle, and almost threaten them uh, to keep going. Like, hey, we need to keep going. Like, we just got shot at. Like, stop stopping because we're still we're close. And, and we continued to move. And then you know, in there, there was some other U.S. forces that maneuvered to try to support us. And then they were too far away they end up having to move up um so the whole plan of you know us being the bait and those kind of uh helping helping provide cover didn't necessarily work out and as soon as we pull out of there after this ends helicopters show up so now we're like oh the helicopters they said weren't coming they actually showed up i would have waited i would have waited 45 minutes for the helicopters thank you but no you know a lack of communication in there so it's just a a really pivotal moment in my life of that really that was there was kind of a two week period of my life there where we were ambushed three times. That was the second of those three times and just so many lessons that like I take from from the from that time. Yeah, and, and that's amazing and and that provides a, a little more texture and and landscape and and color to the 
story in Inc. Magazine, which I'll share with the uh, episode when it goes out. But, you know, when you think of yourself in those, you know, I describe myself being second and 17 feeling life or death. But in that moment, when it really counts, because in training, right, there's some hard shit you go through on, I assume, but you know, it's the people training you are not going to kill you. Correct. Correct. You ultimately know. Even they get in David, trouble if they do that. Right. David Goggins even talks about being almost drowned, but he yep. he knew that that he just had to hang on and he had a fear of water, right? But you know that the people training you, trying to, you know, instill upon you these values and this learning and these skill sets are not going to kill you. But in that environment, you will be killed, right? So can you recall to mind a moment where it was life or death and what was happening in your body at the time and how you were able to respond in a way that allowed you to navigate and move forward to save your life and those around you? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for me, I'll flip back. So probably a little time before this, right? So time period, um, I, like I couldn't sleep, right? Because all I could think about, I was going to get shot right here in the forehead, like right between the eyes, center of the forehead. I was going to get shot. And I mean, it was affecting me, right? When I was out on missions, I'd be like, oh, let me, let me, I tense up, right? Kind of like the quarterback going to the football reference, quarterback about to get hit, tenses up before he throws the football. And I could see it affect me. I wasn't sleeping. And this went on for a couple of weeks. And I was just laying there bed, sweating, middle of the night, one night when we didn't have a mission. And I was like, <laughs> you know what? If I get shot in the forehead, I'm not going to know. I'm not going to like lights out. I don't have to worry about this. Anymore. Like Tony Soprano. Yeah. Yeah. And I, for me, people can laugh, you know, but that, that was an epiphany for me. Yeah. of like, I'm not even going to know if I get shot between the eyes. So let me just keep doing my, and for me, that really opened it up to like, uh, don't be scared. Control the controllables yeah. rather than being consumed by the uncontrollables exactly and focus on what i can control and part of that is i always since then i've talked about i i knew what my goals are and in this situation would be to live right or to rescue someone or do whatever and i always knew what my motivations were so what i was willing to sacrifice to achieve those goals and my motivations for doing the goal you know trying to get the goals and then accomplishing the goal so uh in a very simple manner it boils down to that in combat right of uh why I was there. I knew why I was there. And it was that important to me that I was willing to risk my life. And if uh, something was to happen, I want to make it home. Well, that was, that was beyond my control. Let me, let me do uh, what I do. And so for me, there was never, never any conscious thought in the moment of like, Oh, this is dangerous. Like everything we did was dangerous, but there's times where, you know, you're running while people are shooting and you're running towards them, running into the gunfire there's not a whole lot of thinking going on, right? <laughs> it's uh, it's more of a you're you're reacting to the training and hey, this is what you do. You, you shoot, maneuver, communicate. Uh, not that we're not thinking because we're always thinking, but like there's not a, um, oh wow, this is dangerous. Like yeah, you kind of get past that once you go out the gate because you know whatever happens is going to be dangerous anyways. And so it's the ability to think and the skill set that you were able to develop and train and improve on that allowed you in a high stakes, very hostile environment 
to show up as your best self because you did the training and the natural instincts take over that allow you to just do what you have to do to get it done. Tra- training builds that muscle memory. So you don't have to, Hey, how do I do this? You, you do it just like you go through the football thousands upon thousands of times. And you learn to read the defense and you're rolling to the right and you throw it. That's training. So when you get in the game and someone's, you know, some big dude's trying to tackle you and, and crush you, uh, you, you fall back to your training. So the training there, and then just that mental mindset of, of, of let's keep pushing forward mm-hmm. uh, with that training. You combine those two things, then, then it's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. So when you think about your career, so that was 2004, if I'm not mistaken, that story, right? 2012. Oh, 2012. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so 2012 so we've had 11 years since then so when you think of your transition and and moving in so you join the military at 18 then you do 20 years of service and you retire so you retired at 38 i was i was 38 uh 38 and a half i guess yeah what's amazing is that i worked in azerbaijan for two years and I was the quarterback of the Marine team in Azerbaijan, right? Nice. So I have some really good friends. I'll just mention the name Scott, um, who was in combat. And uh, he was the head of defense for the U.S. Embassy in Baku, Azerbaijan. Yeah. And then there was always these kind of Navy SEALs and Green Berets that would show up for our flag football games. Yeah. We, we only knew their first name. They never could be in photos. But um, I remember back then talking to him about pressure, you know, and 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 what he had experienced. But it's just the, the stories keep coming alive of like putting yourself in that position and choosing to put yourself in the position to serve your country, but to also fulfill the potential that I don't want to say God gave you, because I'm not super religious or anything, but we're all on these certain paths in life that we feel this nudge. And when you think about your whole career and what nudged you to this, you were absolutely the best person for the job, right? So when you reflect back on that, what comes up for you with finding your calling and now finding your calling as you transition into a new life, a new career, yet take all of these life lessons learned to apply to your new career, to continue to evolve and and grow as your present self. That's a good question, Andy. Because uh, what I didn't say growing up, I had two dreams, right? One, well, one was to be a soldier, to be a Green Beret. That's what I wanted to be. And then you know, I added to that to be a drill sergeant. I wanted to be a drill sergeant uh, in the U.S. Army. I get to do those two things. So here I am at 38 years old. I've accomplished the two dreams I had in life, which fortunately, that's great. But then I'm only 38. You know, I'm still under 40. Now I'm over 40. But like, what am I going to do now? What is what is next? Uh, so for me, I've, I've always kind of said, you know, own your journey. And that's like me owning my journey. And I, I didn't know, but I knew I needed to do a little bit of further education. That's how I ended up going to Cornell. And then I, I started looking at what was the things I loved about that work that I did 
that I can do now and quite frankly, I get paid for it. Right. So, um, to me, I love helping people. I love, I mean, that's the motto of the U S army special forces is the oppressor liber, liberate the oppressed. And, and I love that. And as a drill sergeant, I train people and, and I got to see them excel and move on in their careers. So for me is I love, I love helping people liberate and, themselves. Yeah, exactly. And for me, it's like, well, what's that look like? And what's that going to look like after the military? But that was a key thing for me, knowing that that's what motivates me. Now, quite frankly, I like money. Everyone does because it, you know, we need food on the table and a roof over our head. But um, that's not my main motivator. It's it's how can I help people? And if I, I always say, if I just make an impact on one person a day, one per, one person listening to this podcast and it makes a positive impact in their life, this is a victory for me because mm-hmm. now that's one other person that is just, they're better off for whatever reason, whatever their connection to me, or they heard me speak or read a post of mine that they're, they're, they're doing better than it's worth it to me. And that, that to me is the legacy that I want to build. Oh, that's beautiful. And, and that's a life of service. You know, I got quotes up all, all over the, the room. I put these quotes up on the wall to remind me about what's most important. And I recently interviewed uh, George Mumford, who is a well-known performance psychologist who was Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan's performance coach. And George was a heroin addict for 17 years after playing basketball in university. And Dr. J was George's roommate. And Dr. J and George were, were tight, but are still tight. And George hid his heroin addiction for years. And then he deals with his heroin addiction and then goes on to do incredible work to serve the world. Right. And why I share that story is that we go through so many struggles in life to ultimately find how we're going to serve the world and how we're going to save lives and how we're going to impact people around us. And your journey is incredible. And as you transition into your new career, which is not so new, but into your career where you want to help people transition to find their best self, what is it that you are focused on in your work? And what is it that you want listeners to know in any transition in life, how they can deal with it in the best ways possible? to navigate the hardship but still come out on the other side better for having gone through it really yeah any career transition right there and it's not exclusive military i will say military is kind of unique because it's not a job it's a way of life uh though there's very similar with athletes quite frankly you know olympic level athletes that are um hey i've been a rower or sprinter for the last 10 years and now i gotta go or 20 years, you know, it probably is, it consumes your life. So it's, it's a change of a way of life, not just a job, but career transition is hard for everyone, right? And it's, are you willing to learn? Are you willing to step back and learn? I don't care what level you were at before, but you're, you're transitioning and at some point you're, you're going to be at a different level. So are you, do you have that curiosity to learn? Or are you humble enough to go, Oh, I need to learn and I need to listen. And no matter what my expertise is before this, I can always learn from someone else. So let me, let me be willing to do that and and just understand that, you know, career transitions are tough. Uh, And that doesn't, you know, whether you're going to move halfway around the world 
or whether you're going to, you know, switch careers from, I'm no longer going to be an accountant. I'm going to go to be a software developer, whatever it is, you know, career transitions are tough, but rely on, rely on those around you. Hopefully you have, you know, people you can count on, rely on yourself, you know, realize you got to put in the work and and to do that and, and you'll be fine. And for me, honestly, now I'm as fulfilled now as when I was in. And people could be like, oh, wow, that's crazy. But to me, it is. And one thing I would say for everyone, you, you don't need a uniform or a title or some fancy office to serve. You can just, like I said, if, if one person hears this and it impacts them in a positive way, I, I, I'm happy. And now how can I scale that up and affect more? And that, you know, talking here, but I was talking with a, a restauranter uh, a couple uh, a couple months ago. I was in there and it, you know, uh, people always, you know, we talk about service to the country, the military, and he's like, oh, I wanted to serve, but, you know, I got declined for this, got declined for this, wasn't able to. And, and there was there was a tinge of regret. You could hear it in his voice, see it in his eyes. And uh, I was like, look around you right now. L- look at all these people smiling and happy. They're, that's a community. You bring people together. It was a restaurant and, and, and they had a bar or pub in there and I was like, look at the happiness here. You don't know what these people are going through outside of here, but you're given the space to make connections with other people, to be happy. Mm-hmm. You're serving. You're serving mm-hmm. your community. It just looks different. So um, don't be afraid to like be able to serve your community wherever that is around the world. It, it doesn't take uh, you know a fancy title or something to just be a good person and uh, to see what you're able to do for your community. And you know that's amazing advice and that's that idea of service will always serve someone so anybody listening regardless of what you're doing know that what you're doing matters and when you put your heart into it and you stay aligned to your core values and you continue to learn and grow and stay committed you're going to serve one two ten twenty a thousand whatever but you're changing lives, right? And that's what matters. And as we segue to a close, I'm really interested personally in PTSD. Um, I was almost killed in Cambodia. You know, I told you about my journey being in Japan, but I had my ulnar artery severed. So I did experience life or death, you know, in that moment. And it was severed because I put my hand through a bus window that was backing up into a group of students. And um, I pulled my hand out and blood started squirting from my wrist. And I was like, right away, I had like thinking about my boys. They're now 18 and 20 at the time. I think they were five and three. And I knew that I had to grab onto my wrist and stop the bleeding. And I held my hand above my head. And then the principal of the school that we were at, um, he said, I'm trained in first aid. I was a, a ski instructor and he was panicking <laughs> and he brought me into his office and he was trying to like, I remember him trying to pick up the phone and dial and he couldn't even dial because his hands were yeah. shaking. And I was like, I had blood pouring out all over his leather couch and on his desk. And, um, but in the end, you know, long story short, my life was saved by a Scottish orthopedic surgeon that did volunteer surgeries on landmine victims in Cambodia, because there was no other surgeons around that could do an arterial ligation. And when I think back to that moment, PTSD fucked me up. It still fucks me up to this day. 
And I still have flashbacks. And when I'm falling asleep, sometimes, you know, I have never admitted this publicly, but when I'm falling asleep at times, I have really horrible flashbacks, not of the accident, but just of anything bad. And I now know that I can grapple with them and I can recognize them. And I know it's unresolved PTSD showing up in my life. And I just take a few deep breaths when it startles me because I can fall asleep quite easily. But maybe after about 15 minutes, I am awakened by them. And I've dealt with them in my own way. I've had a bit of therapy, but I've also done a lot of reading around PTSD. So I know that I have the skills to deal with it, but they show up and it keeps showing up. But I know I'm equipped to deal with it. So that's my story of, you know, dealing with PTSD, but with everything you've seen, everything you've experienced, you know, you don't have to go deep into your own PTSD experiences, but what is your advice to people going through PTSD and the strategies that they can employ to really move forward in life in positive ways? Yeah, it's really semantics or play on words, but I don't, I don't like the D, right? It's not a disability. It's just a, yeah. it's a response to trauma. That yeah. is natural. That is human nature. And I, I love the, you brought, not that this happened to you, but I love that you brought it up because a lot of people, you know, especially here in the U S it's like, it's only veterans. Like, no, all kinds of people have trauma, right? And there's that response to trauma and, and kind of the, the after effects of it, right? Cause humans weren't meant to deal with a lot of this stuff uh, so for me is is getting over that stigma of oh it's a disability something's wrong with me it's like mm-hmm. no it's normal just like if you pull a muscle or you know sprain an ankle it's you, you got to get some help for me i i'll be honest i didn't cope with kind of my service in the best manner and mine was alcohol uh, i would mm-hmm. drink a lot and this is uh, i think i might have said it one time public before i was going to cornell um I was working with a leading global consulting company. I was producing whatever the book is back here. I was, you know, writing, self-publishing a book and I was drinking probably a half gallon of liquor a day. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, a couple liters of liquor a day. It, no one knew. No one could tell. I was performing at work. I was performing at Cornell. I was, people in my home could tell, right? Mm-hmm. They could tell. And a, a big part for me is my fiance, Corey. I'm just blessed that she came into my life. Um, a few years ago and really challenged me, right? And, but also was very supportive and understanding and just being able to, a lot of this stuff I want to talk about and just being able to open up and get it out has been so cathartic for me mm-hmm. uh, for that. And, and I think that's, you bring some of a lot of people, like you said, hey, when you're going to sleep, it's oftentimes, and that's, I think, human nature is, when your mind has time to wander, where's it going to wander to? Mm-hmm. So are you trying to fill it with good things or you know, when we're left our own devices, like, oh, now I'm thinking towards bad things and stuff. Uh, so everyone's a little different. There's tons of great resources out there that with medicine, uh, with different uh, you know therapies and treatments. I just, I'm not going to say, hey, one is the best way. Just what I will say is doing nothing is not the best way or drinking your yeah. problems away or doing that is really just talking with someone. And for me, that's been huge. 
And in a lot of ways, that's therapy for me is when I could talk about it like this or, but that started with Corey in my house and having some uncomfortable conversations. And it sounds all rosy now. Uh, There was a lot of cuss words involved and a lot of like, I love this woman. She loves me, but it's not working out because Mm -hmm. of some stuff I'm not letting go. That's not working out and and I need to make changes in my life, right? Because I was Mm -hmm. being destructive. So I had to. I had to make some changes. So for anybody listening right now, when when um, you're overcome with internal anxiety based on whatever you're going through, but we know internal anxiety, internal anxiety would manifest itself in uh, complacency and not knowing what to do and agitation, anger, frustration, whatever it is. You know, it sounded like you used alcohol to quiet that critic right suppress yeah to suppress yeah to suppress to just not feel quite frankly i'll say just not feel i didn't want to feel good or bad just let me not feel so the feelings that were coming up were Were, yeah i mean bad for me it was um i was i've always a lot of problems i've struggled with is like i feel like i could do more i could have done more like Mm -hmm. oh what or why did i make it home and my buddy didn't mm-hmm. why why am i here that that guy was a lot better than me he should be here with his family i shouldn't be here with mine you know there's all kinds of things that come up into it and to just keep that from i don't want to think feel anything let me just and really it comes down to feelings and emotions and quite frankly what made me a good green beret special forces operator was being able to put those emotions and feelings aside and be able to just operate mm-hmm. though while understanding what other people's are because i have to make a connection with them post service you know out of uniform that doesn't make for the best situation when you mm-hmm. just pack away all the feelings no emotions um <laughs> we we're actually joking we just went to new york city on the train and and i made a joke to you know my fiance Corey. i was like hey the trains don't care about your feelings we got to be on time right <laughs> uh, but that's our little joke in our house because it's mm-hmm. like uh, probably just, you know, less emotions, less feelings, but like, it's okay to have feelings. It's okay to have emotions. And that's been part of my journey that I'm not all the way there yet, but working towards it. Yeah. So it's acknowledging the emotion, uh, accepting the emotion, dealing with the emotion, but letting the emotion know some interesting research that I came across, which is really fascinating. Uh, we intellectualize, we're always in our head. So we're creating a story based on what's going on. But the story is actually based on research on the um, emotion that is being sent to the brain. So we experience something and then we experience an emotion and then the emotion emotes, literally like passes up to the brain. And then the brain says, okay, this is how I make sense of the story, right? And then it creates this narrative, but it's being able to cut off the emotion not to negate it, but to say, okay, this is what I'm experiencing. I'm not going to let it define me because if I define it in this way, it's not going to serve me. But if I define it more positively and know I have the skill set to get through it, then that's the path I want to take. But you have to literally uh, abrupt the emotion to be able to create the new narrative, right? So there's a lot of really important stuff there. So how does that resonate with you? 
it, it does, and a lot of a lot of it for me has been how I react and think about others. Now, mm-hmm. that's me, but going way back to you know when we started talking the perfectionist and perfectionism, um, not every and not every time is a hit time that it's mission critical, right? Or not everything like oh, a cup left in the sink. That is not the same as a magazine left out of a weapon to where you're not able to, or a a safety check on a vehicle or on a parachute. It's not the same. And I can't go through life kind of with the same. We've talked about like very uh, mission critical life or death situation. Like, oh, look, look around. I'm safe. Thankfully, like this isn't life or death. And really that's been the change for me to not put that onto others. And by that, I really mean a lot my, 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 in my home, right. With, yeah. with our family of, of not doing that. And it's been a process to try to not um, push for that and be, be more laid back and allow life to happen versus being in control. Right. And to me, it comes down to being comfortable without being in control. And oh, that's to, beautiful. You know, and, and I feel like a lot of times, we we struggle with that, but it's it's I'm comfortable not being in control right now. Yeah, it's beautiful, okay. beautiful. And a quote I have on my walls from Martin Buber, a philosopher from many years ago. And what he says is, if a man makes peace with himself, he can make peace with the world. And by using the pronoun he, as he or she or they or whoever. But it's like if we can make peace with ourselves, we can make peace with the world around us. And it's only when we can make peace with ourselves that we can make peace with the world, which means we can make peace with others and help them make peace too. I agree. I, I love that quote. And, and that's really what it's been about of, you know, having peace with myself and, and dealing with trauma and stuff, not just from the military before him talked about that as a kid. So mm-hmm. uh, just being okay and being mm-hmm. okay with not having all the answers and being uncomfortable, but, also trusting others to be vulnerable and to talk to them about it and whether that's a professional or whether that's a buddy or that's, you know my love of my life uh, while i'm sitting there talking with her just getting it out because i know just keeping it in i, d- I did that for a long time and it, it doesn't work you know just compartmentalize and pushing it down and, and trying to ignore it does not work yeah yeah so herb i want to thank you so much for your time and your vulnerability and I thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing your real story and your authentic self and your experiences. And that's why I was looking forward to this conversation. I want the listeners to know where they can find you to learn more about you. So what do you want the listeners to know about where they can find you and how they can connect with you? Yeah, Herb at Herb-Thompson.com. Hyphen's that little line between not on the bottom but in the middle for those that are english challenged like myself uh so herb at herb or excuse me herb uh hyphen thompson.com www.herb-thompson.com give you my email there herb at herb-thompson.com and then linkedin you know look for herb thompson linkedin find find the big uh, tattooed up bearded guy with all the hair and uh, I post on there just about every day. So uh, I really appreciate having me on, Andy. This this was a great conversation. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you so much. And let's let this episode settle for a few months and come on for part two. Would you come yeah, on man. for part two? Yeah. Yeah. I would love that. Yeah, definitely. I, I would love that. Just good conversation. <laughs>
Yeah. So, okay. Thank you so much. I'm going to close off the um, podcast and then we'll just say goodbye. But everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Herb Thompson. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. You are going to find your place, child. Of that much I know I'm sure. Keep on laughing at the rain, I guess. Isn't that the place to start? Someday you will be stronger than you are now. But you will not know everything. When the water's spilling over the bow. You'll still have me in the wings You gotta get up to get down, kid You gotta get down to get up again You gotta get up to get down, kid You gotta get down to get up again Like she's made the gold After all she brought you here And if you're lost go see the ocean It will always help you steer Someday you will be stronger than you are now But you will not know everything the water spilling over the bow You'll still have me in the wind You gotta get up to get down, kid You gotta get down to get up again You gotta get up to get down, kid You gotta get down to get up again I still won't know everything When I'm passing up and over the clouds I hope that you'll have learned from me Someday you will be stronger than you are now But you will not know everything And when the water's spilling over the bow You'll still have me in the wings. You gotta get up to get down, kid. You gotta get down to get up again. You gotta get up to get down, kid. You gotta get down to get up again. You gotta get up to get down, kid. You gotta get down to get up again
Gotta get up to get down, can't 